You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and I have got two great guests on the program today, uh, Executive Director of Semper Virens, Sarah Barth, as well as Laura McClendon, Director of Land Conservation at uh, Semper Virens, great organization that has saved tens of thousands of acres of redwood forests in uh, California and uh, created, helped create six state parks. Uh, so pretty amazing work. And it's been around for what I understand, like 123 years, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. So uh, welcome to your sh- welcome to the show, Sarah and uh, Laura. Thank you. 123 years is nothing in the span of a Redwood lifetime, that, which would be, you know, up to 2000 years old. That's true. That's true. It's all a matter of context. So uh, tell us a little bit, Sarah, about how you came to join the organization and kind of what's your journey that uh, led you to this place? Well, I've been working to protect uh, natural wildlands and wild critters in this country for my entire career. And most of that time had been working at the national level on sort of broad policy efforts and land protection efforts nationwide. Um, But I started to get really interested in protecting the most magnificent species in my own backyard, which is coast redwoods. And so I joined Semper Virens Fund because they are so focused on protecting these amazing forests um, that are of global importance, but right here for Californians to enjoy. Well, tell us a little bit about uh, why these trees have global importance. Well, I think they're remarkable just in and of themselves. They live, as I said, to be thousands of years old. They're the tallest trees on earth. Uh, I think most people across age and culture uh, find them really inspiring, humbling. They they affect people at an emotional level. So they're pretty special in that regard. But they're also pretty incredible in terms of the amount of carbon dioxide that they can sequester. And so in that regard, they're an essential part of solving the climate change problem that we have globally. Um, uh, but they are disproportionately important because of how much carbon they can sequester. Tell us a little bit about how much carbon can a uh, an adult redwood sequester? More um, than any other species on Earth, we know that. I want to give this a a context too, because telling you a a tonnage of carbon is not very helpful if that doesn't mean. So basically, um, we there's a lot of variability in the redwood range, but. Uh, the coast redwood forest acre by acre has the uh, highest potential of carbon storage of any ecosystem on earth that we know of so far, as far as measuring the this carbon storage. Um, and just two mature old growth redwoods um, can remove and store 1600 tons of carbon from the atmosphere. And that's as much as an American produces in their entire lifetime through their carbon dioxide emissions. So that that's a lot, 1,600 tons. It's a lot. Yes. Well, that for two trees. So you basically need two trees per person to offset carbon, your entire carbon footprint for your whole life. So in terms of the work that you're doing, uh, what is the uh, the next step for for you all in terms of are you planting uh, redwoods and other forest uh, trees in in the forest or preserving just what is already um, 
growing and starting? I describe our work in sort of two buckets. One is to take existing natural redwood forests and ensure that they're protected. Um, so if they're in private ownership or we think they're at risk from development or logging, um, unsustainable logging, then we step into action and try to get them into a protected state. So that's one area of work. And we've been doing that for over 100 years. Um, and that continues because it continues to be the best way to protect those lands. But the second way is to really restore the resilience of the forests that do exist. And in some cases, that includes replanting um, and adding to those forests. But mostly it's taking an existing base of forest that may have been degraded by human activities and working to restore its natural functions. And the reason for that is because the more healthy the forest is, the more naturally it functions in terms of its hydrology, its wildfire, um, et cetera, the greater the chance that that forest can remain resilient even in the face of climate change. I've, I've read a, quite a bit about, uh, about starting fires to kind of uh, protect the forest and and uh, yet that has some degree of danger what uh, what is your organization kind of your position on it or if you're involved in those kinds of decisions at all yeah we are involved both in terms of doing prescribed or controlled burns on our own properties supporting controlled burns on lands in the region owned by public agencies um, and we're interested in policy measures that can help make prescribed burning more possible. And the reason for that is, um, you know, historically, naturally, redwood forests would burn regularly, but with low intensity, and it would help sustain the health of the forest, clearing out some of the underbrush, keeping some of that fuel buildup um, from, from increasing. Uh, and a lot of that was sustained actually through indigenous practices. And that all got interrupted about 100, 100 plus years ago when indigenous folks were displaced and when um, European presence started to really try to control fire. And what we ended up with instead was uh, when fires happened, which they inevitably do, they're catastrophic and they're at a level and an intensity that is extremely destructive, even to the redwoods themselves. And so the answer to that is to try to restore the normal low severity fire cycles into this landscape. And that's the way we're going to protect both the redwoods and all their carbon sequestration capabilities, as well as protect the surrounding communities, human communities that are at risk from these more catastrophic fires. And Laura, I wanna let you pipe up here because you you can give much more detailed answers on some of these than I can. Yeah, I mean, it, it it's surprisingly hard to kill a redwood and they are very well adapted to disturbance events. So flood, fire, wind events, um, drought, they can keep growing and keep um, you know sustaining. So we really do focus on what are the, deficiencies in the ecosystem right now that, as Sarah mentioned, came about through, um, you know, settlement uh, and the displacement of Native Americans. And we have partnered with uh, the Amamutsan Tribal Band and the Amamutsan Land Trust on what's called a cultural burn, which is unique from a prescribed burn in that cultural burns involve Native peoples in the burning pro process. And we've lit uh, a few dozen acres on fire so far and seen a huge 
difference in the uh, health and resiliency of those acres versus areas that we haven't yet done this lower intensity burning on. So to My sum it up in answer to your question, we are very pro burning, but we think it needs to be done under the right conditions, you know, to ensure public safety, safety to human structures. Uh, but we think really, I, it, it may seem counterintuitive, but that more regular low intensity burning is the answer to avoid future catastrophic burns that are much more severe. Well, I guess uh, I read that uh, it's actually necessary to have fire to have the the cones open up and and the uh, germination process to occur in the redwoods. Is that accurate? Uh, not necessarily, but um, redwoods uh, do respond to fire by sprouting all around their base. It's called basal sprouting um, out of what's called a burl, which is basically just a big seed store that's waiting for a disturbance to trigger uh, a growth event, and it will keep growing uh, new trees that way. So fire promotes new redwoods. Um, it also really enhances the understory biodiversity number of species as well. So obviously that's challenging to uh, start fires in California or anywhere else where there's been a history of fires. Um, what's happening on the legislative front or the policy front with the organizations that um, are responsible for allowing that to occur, controlled burns? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons, as you noted, that it's hard to do fire in a place as dry as California. And people understandably are nervous about fires getting out of control. So there are all kinds of issues related to liability for anyone who wants to start a fire. And so organizations like ours need to navigate that. And the legislature is trying to make that easier for organizations and public agencies to do controlled burns in a safe way. Um, so liability is an issue. Uh, you need to have uh, resources. We won't do a burn on our property without having a ton of fire engines around the property in case the burn gets out of control. And so that's a limiting factor. And then, of course, um, there's concerns about air quality and, and just even the right conditions on the ground, the right temperature, the right moisture level. So the windows in which you can do burns are pretty limited. And so um, there are active discussions in the legislature about how to make it easier so that we can scale up across the state of California the amount of burning that we're doing. Well, you're listening to a climate change. I've got two great guests on the program, Sarah Barth and Laura McClendon from the Semper Virons Fund, which is protecting our redwoods here in California. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay tuned. You're listening to a climate change. I've got Sarah Barth and Laura McClendon, both of Semper Virons Fund, which is protecting the redwoods throughout the state of California. Uh, tell us a little bit about your efforts, uh, Sarah and Laura, to protect uh, additional tracts of redwoods throughout the state. Where where do we stand on that front? Yeah, we are always looking to protect uh, additional acreage where we can, and we've got a number of ongoing projects. We tend to, to prioritize, but not exclusively, play, uh, properties that are adjacent to existing 
protected areas. So adding on to uh, landscapes that are already, say, state parks or other kind of protected space is part of the strategy we use. We're also always looking for unique um, water features and other parts of the landscape that have variability with the thinking being that with climate change, we're not sure what habitats or microhabitats are gonna be most conducive to survival for redwoods and other species. So we look to provide increased variability in the properties that we protect. Um, but at a big picture level, there's a big uh, set of three state parks in the Santa Cruz mountains, Anya Nuevo, Big Basin, Redwood State Park, and Butno State Park. And that's a major cluster of old growth redwoods. Um, and we're really focused on trying to connect uh, some of the remaining landscape between those parks because it's it's incredibly important um, old growth habitat and not and some some of it's old growth, some of it's not, but it's it's not currently protected. And so bigger is better from a conservation standpoint, particularly in terms of building climate resilience. Laura, uh, as the director of land conservation, uh, what's your role in all of that? My role is advising on what we should protect and in what prioritization. And we've been incorporating a lot more climate data into our acquisition prioritization. So what to protect and why. Um, climate's really gone to the top. So again, we're looking at climate refugia. We're the wetter places. We're looking at definitely protecting the remaining old growth uh, redwoods, which there aren't that many old growth in the Santa Cruz Mountains that aren't already protected, but there still are a few hundred acres that we're targeting as essential for protection. Um, so we're incorporating that. We're looking at wildlife movement and connectivity analysis. Where might wildlife move? Where are they being stymied? Um, and making certain they have pathways between these big protected areas, parks, to move within and between, and um, many other really important factors, too, that we look at for, um, for deciding what to protect. And what, uh, what was your kind of trajectory in life that led you to Semper Virens? Uh, I think first and foremost was just uh, I've always loved nature. I've always loved animals. Uh, spent a great deal outside as a kid, thanks to um, parents that were very supportive of that. Not everybody has that, um, but it, being exposed as a, at a young age, um, you know, saw redwoods when I was a little kid. I uh, started at Simper Byron 17 years ago and um, really grew within the organization to where I am now and just extremely passionate about the protection of this incredibly iconic species and their ecosystem. But I also look at it very holistically. I'm not just protecting a tree, I'm protecting all of the other plants, all the other tree species, all of the wildlife that uh, live in this forest ecosystem and all of the people that benefit from visiting it, from spending time in nature um, and from, you know, getting clean air, clean water and all of those other benefits as well. Certainly as someone who has spent some time uh, myself in uh, the old growth forests of uh, California, it is a very special place. And I certainly encourage everybody who hasn't been there to go check it out because it is truly breathtaking to be in an old growth redwood forest 
um, it, uh, it is a spiritual experience. So definitely everybody should go do it. And if you haven't been there, uh, go back um, recently, whatever. Um, but I, I wanted to turn to how climate change is affecting the redwood forest and what are you seeing kind of on the ground in terms of temperature changes and how that's affecting the redwoods there that you're um, you know, closest to? Well, climate change in our region is, is real and manifests in a lot of different forms. We've seen the average temperature in the region go up by two degrees Fahrenheit, and it's projected to continue to go up another two to five degrees. Uh, we're seeing change in precipitation. The region suffered a, a monumental drought, um, and then all of a sudden experienced atmospheric rivers that were deluges of water. And so not only is precipitation um, getting more extreme, it's just more unpredictable uh, in ways that the native species, including redwoods, haven't been adapted to. We're seeing change in fog patterns, which dramatically impacts coast redwoods. That's where they get much of their moisture. Um, so between drought, temperature rise, uh, change in fog patterns, we're starting to see major impacts in the region um, from climate change. And when you say major impacts, what does that look like? Well, I mean, redwoods are incredibly resilient, so it's not like people are going to come to our region and see a ton of dead redwoods immediately. Um, but the trees are unquestionably under some significant stress, and we're noticing that in particular because individual trees are growing more slowly on an annual basis than they than they have in the past. We do core samples from redwoods where you can look at the at the uh, tree pattern growth over the years, look at the tree rings, and we can see that in these drier, hotter years, they're just growing more slowly. Um, and so I think, you know, ha we haven't seen mass extirpation of redwoods yet, and we're not expecting that, but we are seeing changes um, to the trees themselves. And what about... Oh. Is it as hospitable to uh, for the new trees to grow in this uh, hotter, drier environment? Go ahead, Laura. Did you want to answer? I'll just say I think it's unclear. I think we know that the that younger trees, um, younger redwood trees that are starting their life now, are facing stresses that their elder com uh, counterparts, um, you know, hadn't at their age necessarily. Um, that said, redwoods uh, need each other to survive. And we mentioned earlier the importance of, you know, big protected areas and parks. Well, part of that is that their root system is interconnected and all of these trees are uh, interrelated. A lot of them are clones of each other, although there's a lot of genetic diversity and they help each other um, in terms of nutrient uh, signaling water, sharing water resources. I mean, it, there's so much going on below the ground that um, we're only just starting to find out about. Uh, that said, bigger trees do better in fire. Uh, they have much thicker bark. Uh, smaller trees, which are younger, so say anything under 100 years old, which are a lot of our trees in the Santa Cruz Mountains, they might only have an inch or two of bark, whereas the old growth can have up to a foot of bark and that bark is very fire resistant. Okay, well that's kind of fascinating. So in terms of the new growth forest, are we seeing uh, 
it get wiped out by the the uh, recent fires or would it get uh, wiped out by a controlled burn or could it survive kind of a controlled burn? It uh, we're not seeing them get wiped out, but we are seeing considerable damage to the second growth redwoods in that we we have complete loss of the canopy structure. So all the needles and leaves that uh, that the redwood needs in order to photosynthesize, the, they can regrow their entire canopy, which is not something that most trees can do, which is pretty remarkable. That said, what we don't know is how frequent we're going to have these big mega fires. And if we have one every few hundred years, great. The redwoods can definitely sustain that. If we have one every five years, 10 years, we're going to have some big issues in terms of redwood survivability. Which is why part of what we're doing is trying to ensure that every other aspect of these forests is as healthy as possible to remove any other stressors that we can, whether it's be, you know, human infrastructure and development that breaks up the habitat, fragments it, uh, whether it's um, things that interfere with the natural flow of water throughout the ecosystem. Um, so a large part of what we do is try to restore those forests to as natural of conditions as possible so they can use their own ability to be as resilient to, as possible to the changing climate um, features that we're seeing. It is quite fascinating how the trees essentially communicate below ground through their root system and transfer nutrients and things of that nature. It's kind of a... Uh, a metaphor for us humans is what we could certainly work on doing better to each other and supporting each other. And they they certainly can teach us some lessons on that front. A hundred percent. And a lot of people talk about those, those uh, magnificent old growth trees as the mother trees because they do function not that, not that fathers can't too, but they do function in a way akin to a human parent taking care of the younger saplings. Um, and that is an area of research where they are learning more and more about how important those older trees are to the viability of the next generation of, of trees. Well, it's a fascinating subject and uh, you'll be... Uh... Stay tuned, everybody. We're going to be right back in just one minute. You're listening to A Climate Change. This is Matt Mattern, your host. And I've got Sarah Barth and Laura McClendon, uh, who are with Semper Virens. And we'll be back in just one minute. Listen to a climate change, and I've got Sarah Barth and Laura McClendon from Semper Virens, and we were just talking before the break about the interdependence of the trees upon each other, and uh, kind of like the turn to the interdependence of uh, the humans on the trees. And and uh, Sarah, maybe you could speak to that issue. Yeah, I think often even school kids are taught that forests are important for providing water and air quality, and that is true. But increasingly, we're understanding that these forests, and in particular redwood forests in the Santa Cruz Mountains, are really essential. Their health is intertwined with the health of the surrounding human communities, and it's not surprising if you think of it. Um, but 
Without healthy redwood forests, the region would experience much greater flooding than it already has been. Why? Because those redwoods help slow the water down, absorb it onto the landscape and keep it from flooding into communities. Similarly, redwoods in essence create their own little microclimate and they are responsible for the generation of rain in this region or at least parts of it. And this is an incredibly dry, arid place with not enough water for the people we already have. And if we lose our redwood forest, we're going to have a lot less rain in the region. Wildfire, it has been a huge threat to the human communities. And these these forests are very resilient to wildfire. They're able to um, not navigate, it's the wrong word, but if they are well managed and there is regular low severity fire in these forests, there is a greater likelihood that the surrounding human communities are going to be protected from catastrophic fire. So, and more fundamentally at a macro level, these forests, as we started out this, the podcast discussing, absorb such a huge amount of carbon that they are, you know, contributing at a national global level to uh, carbon carbon emission reduction, which is, of course, a, a macro level threat to, to the people of our region. So for a lot of reasons, these trees are essential to the surrounding community's health and well-being. Yeah, and I guess the the thing that uh, we should all be concerned about is the devastating fires that have run through, you know, these communities and many other communities throughout California and throughout the U.S. Uh, and, and around the world. What can we do to kind of prevent these mega fires that have been uh, burning, you know, kind of nonstop, um, seems like, for the last few years? Or I you want to yeah, yeah I think really key to to prevention of mega fires or at least mitigation of them is promotion of prescribed fire and lower intensity fire. We have a lot of very supportive local communities in the Santa Cruz Mountains who get that fire is essential in low intensity burns uh, to keeping the forest healthy and defending their own homes. Um, but statewide, Nationwide, there's still a lot of resistance to of, of burning, um, mainly because of the smoke it produces and just the, the the fear and the unknowns around why is this being done and can it be controlled? Um, and so we need to do a lot more education of the public at large about uh, you know we need to have a little bit of smoke pretty much every year in order to avoid these mega, mega events that have just devastating impacts on the forest, but also on the air quality and our and and water capacity of our forest to take in water and store it for us. I guess the question I have in terms of scaling, when one drives through the forests in California, you see miles and miles and miles of forest and it just I mean, it's a tremendous resource, and yet uh, the challenge of managing that amount of forest and doing prescribed burns through hundreds of square miles is, uh, is a gargantuan challenge. So maybe you can, one of you can address that as to how, how do we realistically do that? I think that is the challenge of this era for people who care about conservation, not just in California, but across, well, much of the United States, certainly across much of the American West. It's not just a challenge in redwood forests. It's true across the Sierra and, and, else, and, and elsewhere. And I don't have 
an exact answer, except it's going to take a multi-pronged approach that includes educating the public, getting uh, private landowners to be much more proactive about managing their own properties. It's going to take conversations at the community level about how and where people are living and how close they live to forests to protect themselves from those fires. It's about um, thinning forests strategically so that they can be more healthy and less uh, prone to extreme fires. It's really going to take multiple levels of effort. And there are certainly discussions both in Sacramento and in Washington, D.C., among government leaders about how we do more of that. Some of that is providing funding. Um, and, and we've seen both the state and the feds do that. But a lot of it is overcoming some of the community resistance and just putting in place the capacity, the skills that are needed to do the kinds of forest management that we're talking about. Right now in California, a large part of forest forest fire fighting and prescribed burning is done by uh, prisoners in our state prison system. And regardless of whether that's a good or bad thing, it just tells you that if we're turning to that community to staff this, we have a problem and we need, we need way more um, uh, people who are who are skilled and trained to do that to do those kinds of um, that kind of work. I think the manpower issue or human power issue is the biggest uh, one of the biggest obstacles. We just need more people trained to not only um, you know fight mega fires but also to prevent them in terms of lighting these uh, low intensity prescribed fires and do forest management at a bigger scale. We can't we cannot nor should we necessarily go and treat every single acre that's a lot of ground disturbance we can't do that all at once um but what we need to do is return a regime of fire disturbance um that will prevent these mega fires and it just requires a lot of boots on the ground yeah that's kind of what i was thinking and and i'm glad that uh, i'm not completely delusional on that front that it seems like it's a gargantuan job uh, and I guess the question is, well, how do you map out what are the most important areas to target first? Because we clearly have a lack of resources to do it everywhere all at once. So do you know of, of any organization that's really mapping it to determine, hey, this area is the most prone to a mega fire and how do we protect that area? Well, for sure, we're doing that on our properties. I know State Parks is doing it on their properties. I think every major landowner in the state who is at all responsible is thinking about these questions. And the very short answer is, you know, among other things, we have to think first about where do we um, reduce the risk to human communities and work backwards from there. Even achieving that is a major goal, a, a major task. Um, but some of it's also informed by where there are extremely rare species or particular um, places where we know historically fire has burned over and over and over again, where you know that the risk is more severe. And there's a variety of hydrological and uh, topographical issues that help us understand where fire is likely to get more extreme. Um, I don't know, Laura, you may have other things you want to mention, but but you're 100% right, Matt, that this is a gargantuan task. It needs to be pri prioritized and we need to sort of triage within the work that we're doing. 
That's a very good way to put it, Sarah, is, is, is we are triaging in a lot of ways, but we really do need more uh, support from the public, from the state in order to deploy more people and have less barriers politically uh, in order to do the work that's needed to restore resiliency and protect these ecosystems and protect our human communities as well. So in terms of kind of pivoting a little bit to this uh, trillion trees idea that uh, one hears a fair amount about in different uh, publications, what uh, what are your positions about that? And um, are you in support of it? And if so, what types of things are you doing to support that goal? Yeah, I mean, in general, we think more trees are good, but it needs to be the right trees. You know, in, in the Bay Area, we have a history of eucalyptus having been planted, well-intentioned, and now each, each eucalyptus tree is like a little uh, big gas tank ready to explode when fire hits it. And that's not the kind of species we need. We need the species that were historically here and are equipped and adapted to live here. Um, so Semper Virens does plant new trees. Um, in fact, we had a big project uh, in Castle Rock State Park where we were planting uh, black oak. Um, so it's it's not uh, it's it's definitely something that we do, but it needs to be done in a way that's not just uh, planting like it's an agricultural crop where you put a row of you know ten um, Christmas trees that never would have grown there naturally. Laura, is there anything you would add? I would add that there's a great opportunity, I think, on the margins of the Redwood Range to potentially look at expanding the range um, northerly uh, and in areas that maybe redwoods would adapt to with climate change. Um, so that's where new plantings might be beneficial. It's, oh, it's also always great to do a for or a, it's afforestation, which is planting where an area was deforested entirely. Um, the redwoods have, you know, mostly been logged over, um, you know, almost 95% of the old growth uh, that once was now remains. We've lost about 400,000 uh, acres to conversion, uh, which means, you know, agriculture development. And we have about 1.6 million acres of redwood uh, forest uh, still in existence. Um, and so, Planting along, you know, along those margins, filling in those gaps is very key uh, to their survival as well. But the highest priority is to protect the existing natural forests that are currently unprotected, right? Because they're already, they've already got to start a, exactly. a jump on things. Um, but certainly, I think uh, over time, more and more of, of our work will be focused on planting new new redwood forests. Well, you're listening to A Climate Change. I've got Sarah Barth and Laura McClendon on the program today from Semper Virens talking about redwoods, and we'll be right back in just one minute. Listen to a climate change, and this is Matt Matter, and I've got uh, Sarah Barth and Laura McClendon on the program from Semper Virens. And uh, Sarah and and, uh, and Laura, tell us a little bit about this climate resilience bond that's working its way through the state legislature, and how would that uh, 
affect uh, both your organization and California as a whole? Yeah, I mean, climate resilience is an issue up and down the state of California, and it plays out in different ways on the coasts, in the redwoods, amongst our oak woodlands, you know, in our deserts. And so there's an effort in the state legislature to put together a climate resilience bond, and this would provide, uh, and there are different versions of it that are being floated, but um, approximately $15 billion in funding for various kinds of climate resilience efforts, um, including the kinds of uh, wildfire, reintroduction of wildfire that we've been discussing, um, but a bunch of other things as well to help with sea level rise and flooding mitigation and all the kinds of things that are needed to respond to protect the natural and human landscapes here in California. And um, that will move forward if the public supports it. And so I think our listeners, your listeners can engage by encouraging members of the legislature to advance that and encouraging the governor to support that kind of effort. And then uh, we had kind of talked a little bit uh, offline about this federal legislation that uh, Congressman Jimmy Panetta is is uh, forwarding. Tell us a little bit about that legislation and why it is important to. Yeah, he's he's introduced along with with um, Senator Feinstein. So they worked on that before she passed away. Um, legislation that's intended to provide increased funding for. Uh, forest management on federal lands, national forests. We have a huge amount of national forests here in California. A large part of the Redwood Range is on federal forest service lands. And so this legislation was intended to help uh, provide more funding and expedite um, the work that is being done on federal forest lands to deal with climate resilience, to enhance climate resilience. So that's uh, an important effort. I, I know that a number of people, well, it's um, have been pushing for 50% of all lands to be uh, wild uh, by 2050. And the current effort uh, in California is 30% by 2030. Where are we at right now? And are we on a path that we could put aside 30% of California lands by 2030? Yeah, well, we're, of course, going to support 50% by 2050, uh, but let's first get to 30% by 2030. And in our region, the Santa Cruz Mountains region, we're actually doing pretty well. And Sempervirens has used that framework to help drive our own goals for additional land we'd like to protect in order to reach that target of 30%. Um, and if you look at the whole state overall, I think we're I don't know if we're on track to succeed, but we're certainly, um, it's it's reachable, right? It's not a complete moonshot. Uh, but what it's going to take is two things. One, additional public funding and private funding, such as Sempervirens provides, to purchase those lands to ensure they're protected, to reach that 30% of land protected by 2030. And secondly, I think there needs to be a greater effort uh, to streamline some of the bureaucracy that exists at the state level um, that makes it hard for lands to be protected and turned into public lands uh, where they can be managed appropriately. And so I think both things need to occur if we're going to reach that um, 30 by 30 goal. Certainly, there seems to be political will for that. I think the question is whether that those changes and that amount of funding can happen fast enough. 
Tell us a little bit about uh, the nuts and bolts of purchasing uh, these redwood forest areas in terms of cost. I mean, how how much would it cost to to per, to purchase a ten acre track or a hundred acre track? Well, I'll let Aunt Laura give you the details on that, but I will just tell you, as someone who has to fundraise for those purchases, this is some of the most expensive acreage to protect anywhere in the country and, and maybe anywhere in the world. And the reason is we're paying for not only the real estate value, the development value of the land in question, and we're, we're uh, competing with very wealthy people who'd like to have a second home in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but we're also paying for the timber value of those redwoods, which is incredibly valuable. Um, so it's crazy expensive to protect land in this region. Laura, do you want to tell them what the most recent cost per acre is? Yeah, it it is. As Sarah said, we are we are protecting some of the most costly uh, land in probably in the whole in the entire world at the you know footstep of Silicon Valley. Um, and we're looking at prices that are anywhere from uh, I would say eight thousand to twenty thousand dollars per acre, if not even greater. Um, and it, interestingly enough, the smaller the property, the usually the higher the cost per acre we find. So it really is more cost effective for us to go after much larger properties. Um, that said, we consider all ranges of size of the properties and their uh, characteristics in order to create you know, a, a very thriving, protected, connected forest ecosystem. Well, in terms of buying something now, do you have properties that you're working on purchasing at the moment? Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, are you fundraising for them now? And how much you, how much is it going to cost to buy these lands? Yeah, that's the bread and butter of our work since 1900. It was really about buying land from willing sellers. So we're a nonprofit organization. We're non-governmental. So we work uh, in partnership with private landowners who want to sell their properties outright uh, or who want to sell or, uh, or donate, although most of the time we are purchasing them uh, at a cost. And then uh, landowners who may not want to part from their land entirely, but are willing to give up certain rights, like future development rights, future timber rights. I mean, that's called a conservation easement that we purchase, which is is several of those sticks in the bundle of rights. Um, and very a more cost-effective way, actually, to protect a large amount of acreage than just fee acquisition. But we do pursue uh, many, many tools in order to protect as much acreage as possible. Just to give you a specific example, we've been in active dialogue with property owners who have about a thousand acres that we're very interested in. And that price tag looks to be around $15 million. So if anybody who's listening has got an extra 15 million or any part of 15 million, please uh, give Semper Virens a call. Yes. <laughs> we can put it to good use. <laughs> You know, a thousand acres is a lot of land, uh, about two, almost two square miles of uh, redwood. So that's a, that's an amazing piece of property to, uh, to uh, protect for future generations to have these trees, which um, I think any of us who've experienced uh, being in a redwood forest know how special that is. Yeah, they're irreplaceable. So uh, tell us a little bit, uh, as to your, our listeners, I'd love to you know, leave them with a call to action as to what they can do to get involved with your organization or other organizations and 
maybe weave a little bit in as to maybe what your experience is in that domain, whether for yourself or other volunteers and what that could yeah. be. Well, I would encourage people to check out our website, which is sempervirons.org. And um, on that, you can find, first of all, a lot more information about the issues we've been talking about. We've got a detailed climate action plan on it and a whole series about climate and redwoods. So if you want to learn more. But in addition, you can learn about opportunities to volunteer, literally get your hands dirty and go in and help with some of our land stewardship efforts, um, as well as other uh, volunteer opportunities help us with uh, attendance at events, tabling, things like that. Um, and uh, yeah, so, oh, the other thing on our website that you'll find is uh, where there are opportunities to engage in the policy process and lend your voice to the political discussions that impact the future of Redwoods. Sure. And Laura, uh, last words for our audience. I would say that the, the solutions for mitigating climate change are already in front of us. Um, these natural solutions and the best way that any individual can promote that is by supporting conservation groups that are protecting land, protecting redwoods, uh, especially some environments fund. But there are so many groups that are doing this incredible work and it's very effective. And we just need to keep scaling it up in order to protect our forests and natural resources. Well, thank you both, Sarah and Laura, for being on the program and uh, sharing with us the great work that you're doing at Semper Virens and uh, certainly call to action for all of us to to step up and do more uh, because uh, our whole our whole world is at stake. So it seems like uh, we can all do more. Um, Everybody follow us at climatechange.com. You can check out old episodes there or on Apple Music or Spotify, iHeartRadio. We've got all the episodes up there. Check us out. Send uh, requests for questions or guests that we can uh, interview in the future. Um, we've really enjoyed having both uh, Sarah and Laura on the program, and hopefully we can have you back at some time in the future. Thank you for having us, and thank you for your interest in the Redwoods. We can change the world.